four. Romans chapter four. Continuing our study here through the book of Romans. Now, real quick review here before we get ready to jump in. Paul has been making his very logical but yet spirit-led case here for the importance of the gospel. You've heard me do this every week, but just a quick review for some of those that may have missed it. Romans 1, Paul introduces us to the concept of the gospel, the good news that God loves us and Jesus died on the cross. But then he says in Romans 1 that creation is the greatest witnessing tool that God gave us for the gospel, but yet creation has been perverted by sin. So through the rest of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and a good chunk of Romans 3, Paul lays out this case how we're all sinners, every one of us. And we've covered that emphatically that if you really study out Romans 1, 2, and 3, you can't walk away from that chapter not knowing that we're sinners. You know, it all sums up in Romans 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, no, not one. None of us are righteous. But then yet, in the second half of Romans 3, we're introduced to this wonderful concept of grace. And that's what we talked about last week, is this wonderful concept of grace and how God loves us and he makes us right. He makes us righteous through what Jesus Christ did on the cross and that there's nothing we can do for ourselves to make ourselves right in the eyes of God. It's only through Christ. And to prove this point, now in Romans 4, he uses two Old Testament examples to prove this point. And that's what we're going to talk about today is Abraham and also David. We've talked the last couple of weeks how the key verse here is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. And it had everything we need to know in there. We're saved by grace, through faith. There's nothing you've done to save yourselves, nothing I've done to save myself. It's a gift of God. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. So, Romans chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it's interesting that Paul picks Abraham. Because if you would go up and ask during Paul's time, the typical Jewish guy, who are the heroes of the Old Testament? They wouldn't say Old Testament, obviously. They would probably, you know, mention Noah. They'd mention Daniel. Moses would be right up there at the top. But you would probably get down to Abraham and David. Abraham is the father of the Jews. That's how it all started. It was with Abraham. God called Abraham to be the father of the Jews. And then you'd have David... Israel's greatest king. So you'd have those two as a package deal that we'd want to talk about. Well, by this point now in Romans, by the time you reach Romans 4, like I said, we've already established the fact we're all sinners. We've already established the fact that we're only saved by grace, that there's nothing, nothing that you can do to save you. Remember in Romans 3, he said, just because you're a Jew doesn't make you saved. Just because you've been circumcised doesn't make you saved. What we said for us today, doesn't matter what denomination you were raised in, your denominational background does not make you saved. Jesus, it makes you saved. It doesn't matter what religious hoops you have jumped through. Some of them have merit and some of them are good, but those religious hoops you jump through do not make you saved. Well, to prove his point, he uses Abraham and he uses David. But why Abraham? Well, it's kind of an interesting thing about Abraham. Abraham lived 600 plus years before the law was given. So to say that Abraham was saved, to make him right with God, you would have to acknowledge the fact that well, Abraham was not right with God by the law because the law didn't even exist by the time Abraham was around. So you can't say Abraham was made right by the law. So we can take that out. Those people that think, well, he was made right by the law. No, he wasn't. The law didn't even exist. Well, then the reason Abraham was saved is because obviously he was a good guy. If you look at Abraham's spiritual resume, look at the things he has. Number one, he's called the friend of God. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good title to have, friend of God. Put that on your resume. That's a pretty good background check. Number two, he's the father of the Jews. I'm the father of the Irvins. That really doesn't carry a whole lot of weight, but the father of the Jews? That's pretty good. 
So if you're looking at his resume, he's the friend of God, he's the father of the Jews, that's pretty good. Well, obviously Abraham was saved because of what he did. Well, let's study out Abraham's life here a little bit. In Genesis 12, Abraham is called by God. God calls him out of the area that he's living in. He says, I want to take you out of this area. I'm going to move you to a new area, and I want you to leave your family behind. So what does Abraham do? He takes his dad with him, and he takes his nephew Lot with him. So the first thing you have right there is Abraham had what? We had partial obedience. We know that his dad slowed him up, and we also know that Lot got him in a lot of trouble. Partial obedience. One of the things that we say out there at the Irvin house is partial obedience is actually full disobedience. If you partially are obeying something, that means you're really disobeying. So yes, Abraham was the friend of God. Yes, he was the father of the Jews. But the first thing we find out about him is he didn't obey God fully. Okay, well, let's just ignore that one. Let's move on. Well, the next thing you run into is obviously Abraham's wife, Sarah, was quite the looker. So Abraham runs into this foreign king, and he's concerned that this foreign king is going to kill him to get his wife. So he says to Sarah, his wife, he says, hey, tell everybody you're my sister. So now we have Abraham. He's partially obedient, which means he's really disobedient. And now he's a liar. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit farther. Well, God promises Abraham this son, and Abraham's old. He's in his 90s, and God promises him a son. We'll get to that next week. But God wasn't moving quick enough. So Sarah has this great idea of, Abraham, let's have a son, but why don't you have him through Hagar, my maidservant? So Abraham has a child through Hagar, which becomes Ishmael, which becomes the uh, Arabs of today. So now we see that Abraham's a man of the flesh not willing to wait on God. Well, then to top it all off, once again, Abraham runs into this guy by the name of Abimelech, and now Sarah is much, much older and still must be quite the looking gal. One of the first things I want to do get to heaven is I want to look up Sarah. I just got to see what she looks like. And I don't mean that in an inappropriate way. I just got to know. And so he says, tell everybody you're my sister again. So Abraham's resume is friend of God, father of the Jews, but he's not obedient to the Lord's calling. He lies about his wife numerous times, and he's willing to follow the paths of the flesh rather than the spirit. So you can't sit here and say Abraham got in because of what he did, because he didn't do what's right. He was a sinner. This is the point that Paul is trying to make, because this is what happens today. There's still people today that believe that I am saved by Jesus, by what he did on the cross. I'm fully saved by him, but I'm a decent person. So since I'm a decent person, that's why God saved me. Go back, if you want to further study this week, go back and find me the verse that tells why God chose Abraham. You won't be able to find it, because God just chose Abraham to choose Abraham. See, we like to stop and think, well, God chose Abraham because Abraham was this good person, and he knew that that's the person he could use to father the Jews. No, no, no. We just established the fact that Abraham has quite the list of sin. See, we still think that sometimes. So God chose me for salvation because he knew there was something in me that he could really use for the kingdom. No, there's nothing in you. Nothing. God's grace is what covers everything. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. There was not something redeeming in Abraham that made Abraham, for lack of a better word, savable. He wasn't there. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What has Abraham our father found according to the flesh? What was in Abraham's flesh that was good? Nothing. Verse 2. Well, Abraham was justified by his works? Not before God. Abraham may have been a moral guy to the rest of the world, but before God, he was a sinner. See, we do this all the time in Christianity. We have comparative Christianity. I'm not where I'm supposed to be spiritually, but I'm a better husband than that guy. I'm not where I'm supposed to be out with the Lord, but I sure pray more than she does. No. That may get you a higher standing in the idea of man, but not before God. We're still sinners. So what's the answer? The answer is verse 3. Abraham believed God. Was it accounted to him for righteousness? How was Abraham saved? He believed. People come up all the time. How are the Old Testament saints saved? By believing. It's like we're saved. By believing. It's faith. Now it's important to note two words here. Because this verse is vital. 
You can always tell when a verse is vital, when it's quoted out of the Old Testament, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and when it's also repeated numerous times in the New Testament. This verse is repeated numerous times because it is the foundation of faith and salvation for the Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Those two words we need to focus on is believe and accounted. The first word there, believe, carries an a idea of a saving faith. It's a heavier word than just believing. See, too often, I used to go up and ask people, do you believe in God? I've only met a handful of what I would call true atheists in my life. Almost everybody runs to, oh yeah, I believe in God. Well, then right there, they think they're okay. This word believe means more than just acknowledging the fact that God exists. This is not just the acknowledgement of a fact. I believe in Satan, but I don't follow him. I believe in demons. I don't follow them. In fact, the Bible says that the demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. doesn't make him saved. This idea of believe carries a heavier connotation of not just acknowledging a truth, but it's a saving faith. So when you say you believe in God, you're not just acknowledging that there's a higher power, an existence bigger than you. You're saying that I'm placing my life, my faith, my trust in God. It's a saving faith. Well, the next word there is accounted. This word accounted is used 19 times in the book of Romans, the most of any book in the Bible. In fact, it's used 11 times in chapter 4 alone. This is an actual finance term. It means to count, to compute, to calculate. Some of your translations may actually have the word credit there. It's credited to him righteousness. Now, as many of you know, my background is finance. That's what I went to school for. And I love the finance part of stuff because money is black and white. When anytime someone comes into my office and they're having financial problems and we want to work out a budget, what's the first thing we do? We sit down and say, tell me all the money that's coming in. Let's go through all the bills that are coming out. Finances are simple. As long as you have more money coming in than going out, we can work with this. Money doesn't lie. It's black and white. Now, people that use money may lie, but money itself does not lie. So when I see this term, accounted to him for righteousness, it means credited. Credited. It's put onto your account. So this is what it means. Abraham believed in God. Not just acknowledge that he exists, but placed his saving faith in him. And so therefore, it was credited to his account righteousness. It's an accounting term. Debits and credits. This righteousness was credited to his account. What did he do to get this righteousness? And remember, righteousness just means to be made right with God. Nothing. That's the point of this. He did nothing to get this righteousness. He just believed. That's the simplicity of Christianity. you got to love it. You believe in God, you believe in Jesus, and what he did, you place your saving faith in him, and your account is credited righteousness. It's like when you go to some store and you return some item you bought, they say, I will credit your account. They put that money back into your account. You know, one of the things that we do at, at home is um, we have some of these credit cards that we use, and we use credit cards to pay for stuff, and I always have to say, when we use credit cards, we pay it off every month, just so everybody knows their full disclosure. It's a lot easier when you have four kids just to pay at the pump than it is to go in. So we use these credit cards, we pay them off every month, and you add up these points. It's some special card that Dawn gets, and you reach so many points, you can turn them in for rewards. And so Dawn, a couple of times this year, has turned them in and got like 150 bucks back just by spending money. See, credit cards are good. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. See, someone's going to take that quote and run with it. Point is, that money is just credited to your account. Dawn was hooping and hollering the other day because she turned her points in, and that money is just put right into the account. It's credited just like that. It's a wonderful thing to be credited. Well, spiritually speaking, I have nothing in my account. Actually, I have a lot of debits in my account. I owe a lot because of my sin. God just credits me righteousness. Why? Because I believe in him. 
And that's what it comes down to. So that's the simplicity of what this is saying here. Is God gives us righteousness, even though we don't deserve it or have earned it. Abraham did nothing to earn this. Well, some people still may be thinking, well, he had to do something. Well, look at verse 4. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So here's, this is how we think of things. We think of verse 4. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, some of you are going to go to work today, tonight, or tomorrow, and you're going to go into work. Now, I don't think any of you probably have the job where you're going to get paid that day. You're not going to get paid that hour. You're going to go, and you're going to probably have a one-week or two-week pay period, and you're going to go work your hours, not get anything for it. Then when payday comes, you'll get a check. So what happens from an accounting perspective is you go work, they owe you your salary. So that's what it's saying here in verse 4. You work, your wages are counted as debt. The business owes you that money from an accounting term. It's accounts payable. They have to pay you this. So when your paycheck comes, you get paid. You work, they owe you. It's debt. Well, it's not grace. See, this is what happens. Sometimes people will come up and say, I love my job. Okay, and I always wonder, if you really love your job, would you do it for free? No, no. See, if you would do it for free... That's grace. If you're doing it because you get paid, that's debt. Now, you may really like your job, but to do your job for free, according to Romans 4, 4, you're saying, that's grace. I'm just going to work, and you owe me nothing. But when you go out into the world to work, they owe you. That's debt. That's the way our system works. I work, and then you owe me. And that's what we sometimes think spiritually, is, Lord, I do these good things. So therefore, Lord, you owe me. But the problem is the flip side. Lord, I do these bad things. That means I owe you. I'm telling you right now, I don't care how old you are, you will owe God more than what he would ever think that he would owe you. Because look at verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted, there's that word again, credited for righteousness. Now check that out. Verse 5. I don't work, I believe, and I still get something out of it. That's righteousness. Credited to me. I don't work for my salvation. I don't earn good favor with God. I don't do anything to make myself more lovable in God's eyes, because I can't. And so what happens is I just believe on him, and I get credited righteousness. That's an amazing concept. That's an absolutely amazing concept. That is the concept of grace, is you get something, and you didn't do anything to get it. See, the concept that we have in our world today is, well, there has to be some trade here. You know, I, I work my way up to the Lord. No, 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 no. See, here's the thing. You remember last week we talked about these two words, that in theology there's Jesus and, and then there's Jesus only. And Jesus and, you believe that Jesus saves you from your sins. You firmly believe that. Jesus saved me from my sins and I do X, Y, and Z, which helps out the process. No. I, I do this. I, I do these religious hoops I jump through. I do these good deeds. I do these good works. Yes, I believe Jesus saves me, but I do these extra things that help. No. It's Jesus only. That's what verse 5 is saying, is you do no work, you believe, and you still get righteousness. That's what it is. That's Jesus only, nothing else. See, if you think it's Jesus and, then please explain, why did Christ say on the cross, it is finished? If it wasn't finished, why would he say it? When he says it's finished, that means the whole salvation thing is done. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But yet we have this mindset of we think we could still do something. And I know Christians that firmly believe Christ died on the cross for their sins, and they firmly believe in salvation through him, but yet they still have this mindset this mindset of, of God almost owing them something. I have put up with this marriage for years, and I know the Lord sees that. Yeah, He, he does see that, but it doesn't mean He owes you. I, I have put up with this. I've done this. I've worked at this job for so long. My life has been so difficult, so I know that God sees this, and He will repay me. Wow. 
Bible says God is a debtor to no man. But yet we think because we did X, Y, and Z, God sits up there in heaven and is just totally shocked by our amazing grace, and he says, wow, I owe you. You have overdone Jesus on the cross. No, 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 no. But it's tough when someone has that mindset. Years ago, when I first started out here, um, I was asked to do a funeral for a guy that I never met, family never met. You know, it's not uncommon the funeral home will call up and say, hey, we have a family in the community where they passed away, they didn't have a church. Are you available to do it? And I, and I try to do as many funerals as I can for people that I've never even met because it's an opportunity to tell Jesus to people. You got them sitting there for 25 minutes. No one walks out of a funeral. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about Christ. And every funeral I do, I'm going to take you to John 11, and I'm going to read you the verse where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I, I will, every funeral. Now, so I was asked to do this funeral, so I go over to talk to the family. Once again, never met the family, never met the guy, and it was, it was tough. And so you're talking to them about this, and I said, so, so was he a Christian? And it was just like in the movies, complete silence, crickets chirping. And finally someone pipes up, well, he believed if you followed the Ten Commandments, you'd be okay. And my heart just sank. My heart just sank. And, and then they started talking about how he believed that, you know, uh, that he was a good man, a moral man, and that God would see that and know that, and that he had a tough life, and so since he had a tough life, that God would let him in. It's almost like you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter's standing there, and you, and you make your case of, hey, I went through this rough life for you, Lord. I didn't ask for the cards I was dealt with in life, but I put up with that marriage, I put up with that job, I put up with those kids, I put up with that health, so you better open those doors for me. No, that's not how it works. Because then you're saying that you've earned it, or you're saying that you have earned it by your actions of the struggles you went through. Relook at verse 5. To him who does not work, does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited righteousness. So I'm saying I do nothing but believe and I'm in? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's grace. See, now the problem is, and I have to put this out there because somebody may be sitting out there saying, okay, James, you're, you're forgetting the second side of this believing thing. That yes, you believe. It's a saving faith. Yes, it's more than just acknowledging that God exists. But once you believe, your life changes. And therefore, once you believe, you live a Christian life and etc. And I agree with all that. I'm not trying to downplay that. And that will come out in the rest of the book of Romans. That because we believe in God and because we accept Christ, our lifestyle changes. But the initial fact of salvation is you believe. That's grace. The lifestyle does change. Just wait till we get to Romans 6 and 7. It's coming, trust me. But for right now, salvation is you believe. It's just a tough concept, isn't it? Because we always think, what do I get out of it? If I do something, Lord, what do I get out of it? The new thing at the Urban House lately is, whenever we ask the boys to go do something, they always ask, okay, if we do it, what do we get? That's, that's what it is. is. So, boys, go clean up your room. Okay, if we clean up our room, what are we going to get? You're going to get nothing. That's what you're going to get. So just go up and clean your room. And so they'll go up and they'll say something like, okay, uh, we cleaned up a room. Can we have a piece of candy? That's our new thing now. Is, can we did this. Can we have a piece of candy? And so yesterday, Dawn was out here for a Bible study. I was home with the kids. And I said, okay, we're going we're gonna to clean this morning. So I said, Elias and Judah, you're going to go downstairs to the basement. You're going to clean up the basement in what we call the blue room, the toy room. Kenan, you're going to help watch Layden. You're going to uh, take care of the living room, pick up blocks. I'm going to work in the kitchen. And I said, you know what? If you guys do a good job, if you guys do a good job, I'll give you a piece of candy for that. They were all excited. And I said, but you know what? If you guys don't do a good job, I'm still going to make you do it. <laughs> and you're not going to get candy, but I'm still going to make you do it. Because they, and I thought, okay, we'll reward them for doing that. So what happened now is we've taken this point, and, and the problem is they've now run with it, like I said, especially Kenan, number three. And so Kenan now will be walking through the house. He'll pick up a pillow and set the pillow on the couch and come up and say, Dad, I, I cleaned up the living room. Can I have a piece of candy? 
It's like, come on, bud, you, you picked up one pillow. Or he'll pick up one thing, Dad, can I have a piece of candy? And I said, no. And I said, I won't. He goes, but I cleaned. It's almost that idea of you owe me. I've done something good, you owe me. Same thing happens spiritually. Lord, I put up with her. You owe me for this. No, God doesn't owe anything. So what happens now is I told Kenan, I said, listen, Daddy gives you candy because he loves you. That's why I give you candy, it's because I love you. So now he'll pick something up and he'll put it away and he'll say, Daddy, can I have a piece of candy because I cleaned up? And I said, no. He'll come up to me and go, Daddy, can I have a piece of candy because you love me? <laughs> now, take this concept and just replace candy with salvation. You're talking to your Heavenly Father. Dad, can I have salvation because I cleaned up my life? No. Dad, can I have salvation because you love me? Yeah. See, I'll give my kids candy if they ask. They love me. Not every time. Come on, you understand the rules here. But when he says, can I have candy because you love me? Yeah, I'll do that. Dad, can I have salvation because you love me? Yeah. Dad, can I have salvation because look at me. Look at me. I'm trying. I'm working. I'm doing this. No. But because I love you, I'll give you salvation. See? Verse 5. To him who does not work, believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Salvation is so simple. Now, after you get saved, it's a little tougher. But the initial salvation, it is so simple and how it all comes together. We want grace. So he uses Abraham as the example of the guy that saved, not by what he did, not by his resume, not by his works, but just because he believed. Okay, well, what about the guy that's a sinner, that's in sin? Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. What about the guy that's in sin? Turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's build on this for a second. Let's talk about David. Once again, from a Jewish perspective, when Paul's writing this book 2,000 years ago, using David and Abraham, he's doing a little bit of name dropping. All the Jews would know who David and Abraham are. Abraham, the father of the Jews. David, the greatest king of the Israel. So he uses them. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's talk about the guy that's in sin. As you're going to 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is probably the low point of David's life. Now, a lot of times when we think of David, we like to think of the good stuff. David killed Goliath. Okay, now, now really stop for one second and think about this. Now, I know you can think of little things, but just stop for one second. Make a list in your mind of all the... Great stuff David did. The great stuff. David killed Goliath. Okay, what did he do after that? He did a lot of the good things. But yet we have David up on this pedestal. David was a man of the flesh. And I'm not saying this to attack David. But we know he was a man of the flesh. We can relate more to David, not by his necessary his spiritual accomplishment, but by his moral failures. Because he was honest about them as you read the Psalms. Look here in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year... At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. Now let's just stop right there. What's going to happen here in 2 Samuel 11 is David's going to go out one evening. He's going to see Bathsheba bathing. He's going to like what he sees, so he's going to invite Bathsheba over. They're going to have an affair. Bathsheba's going to get pregnant. Well, now he's got to cover this up somehow. So what's the best way to cover this up? Okay, well, I'm going to call Uriah home, Bathsheba's husband. I'm going to say, okay, Uriah, let's party a little bit here. So Uriah's going to get drunk. I'll send Uriah back to his house. Assume that something will happen between Uriah and his wife. Therefore, we'll just say the baby was his. It's all covered up, and we can move on. Problem was, Uriah was a decent, moral guy. He didn't do anything with his wife. He said, I can't do this. My, my troops are on battle. I can't do this. So now David doesn't know what to do. So now he says, got to take care of the problem. Joab. Send Uriah up in the heat of the battle. And then when the battle gets really tough, pull everybody back but Uriah, so that way he dies a soldier's death. So Uriah dies. Next thing you know, Bathsheba comes over. 
David comforts Bathsheba, as the Bible says, and now everything can be okay because Bathsheba's pregnant with David, but David's the good guy because he took care of Bathsheba after Uriah died, and everything's fine in David. That's living in sin. That's just living in unrepentant sin. There's no way around that. But what got David into that spot? Look at verse 1 and 2. Now it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. Well, why wasn't David going out to battle? Why wasn't he? That's what he's supposed to be doing. Verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. Why was the guy taking a nap in the evening? The background to chapter 11 is David got spiritually lazy. And because he got spiritually lazy, he made compromises and started living in a lifestyle of sin that he shouldn't have done. So David's spiritual laziness caused all these problems. But what happened was, <clears throat> he's living with Bathsheba, and as it says at the end of verse 27 of chapter 11, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We can piece together David's life. David went unrepentant for about a good year. A good year of being unrepentant. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew his lifestyle actions were wrong. He knew he was with this gal and he shouldn't be with this gal. He knew it was all wrong. But yet it didn't really bother him too much. Or did it? Now we know from looking at Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and Psalm 51 that David was an emotional, spiritual, and physical wreck because of the lifestyle he was living. A lot of times I see people going through difficult times in life and they sometimes say, why is everything just falling apart for me? Sometimes I ask them, is your life displeasing to the Lord? Are you acknowledging that you're doing things that God does not want you to do? Are you living a life that the Lord does not want you to do? Sometimes in God's infinite grace and mercy, he allows these storms to come into your life to get your attention because your lifestyle is not in line with his. That's just a fact. I mean, the, the Bible says there's a path we should go. If you get off that path into what you want to do, it's going to get pretty, pretty bumpy. Awfully, awfully bumpy. David got off the path that God called him. He was living with this relationship with this woman that he shouldn't have been living with. And his life was falling apart spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Once again, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. Well, anyway, we get to now to 2 Samuel 12. God sends Nathan to go talk to David about this. And they do this great buildup of the story of this guy has one lamb, this guy has many lambs, and the guy with all the lambs takes the one lamb from the guy. And it's a picture of Uriah and David. Uriah just had Bathsheba. David could have whatever he wanted. He's the king. David took this wife from Uriah, had him killed. And so what happens is Nathan lays it out on David's lap of you. You are sinful. You are wrong. Verse 7 of chapter 12, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You did this. Then jump ahead, verse 12. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wait a second. Verse 13 is too easy. There should be a bigger buildup to this. Only thing David has to say is, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's like it just it's all over. Verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. At, no. Yeah. Aren't you glad it's that easy? Now, before you start thinking easy equates okay, no. It's easy because Jesus suffered on the cross. There's consequences to sin. Consequences. And once you get from 2 Samuel 12 on, David's life is anything but easy. But spiritually speaking, he's forgiven. See, we used Abraham as the example of the man saved by faith, by grace that did nothing. David is the example of the man forgiven by faith and grace. What did David do to earn this forgiveness? Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all. That's all. Here's the problem that people run into. They do something they shouldn't do. And so they have this huge burden of guilt on their shoulders. And they'll come in and they'll talk to me. I'll say, hey, have you given it over to the Lord? Yeah, I've given it over to the Lord. Okay. 
They're still feeling this burden and guilt, and I usually ask them, have you forgiven yourself? God's forgiven you. Why aren't you forgiving yourself? See, the problem is, in our mind, it, it, it shouldn't be that easy. There's something I should do to earn this forgiveness back. And maybe you grew up in a denomination where there was this burden over you that, okay, yeah, God forgives you, but my goodness, you're on thin ice. You need to go do X, Y, and Z just to make sure he's okay with you. No, there's no earning forgiveness. There's no penance that has to be done. We say we're sorry, and God then forgives us. That's grace. That's forgiveness. That is crediting our lives with righteousness. The debt is taken care of. And so that's why David could simply say, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all. And then he says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. It's amazing how simple that is. You deal with the wrong, and then you move on. I like that. One of the things that I remember when uh, we were taking the parenting class out here and Richard and Betsy were teaching it is um, one of the things that Richard and Betsy said, they weren't a big fan of, of, of putting the kids in timeout. And they said the reason they weren't a big fan of putting the kids in timeout is because it prolongs the discipline. And so we don't do timeout with our kids. If there's something that needs to be wrong, we take care of it, we discipline it, we move on. And one of the amazing things about it is, is that when they've done something wrong, they know they're wrong, you discipline the action, and guess what? It's done. Let's move on in grace. You said you're wrong. We took care of that. The penalty has been paid. Let's move on. You know, with the timeout thing, you prolong this sin and judgment and punishment. I mean, can you imagine, spiritually speaking, if God would say, I know you're sorry, I know your heart's sorry, but you go stick your head in that corner for another six years. I don't want to deal with you yet. Aren't you glad that when David said, I have sinned against the Lord, the Lord has also put away your sin? I love that. That's how simple it is. Just like Abraham was simply saved by believing in faith, David was simply forgiven by believing in that and that he had that forgiveness. Now, look from a works perspective. Jump back now to Romans 4. That's why David can write, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Blessed literally means, oh, how happy. How happy was David that it's over and done with. Now, from a works perspective, what could David have done to make himself right with God? Well, Old Testament perspective is when you sin, you pick the appropriate sacrifice, and once you pick that appropriate sacrifice, you kill the appropriate animal in the appropriate way, and the sin was supposedly covered up by the blood. So let's say David goes to the Lord and said, okay, here's my sins, um, adultery and murder. So I'm going to, hey, someone, can you bring me the scroll of Leviticus? Okay, I'm going to look through the burnt offerings. I'm going to look through the sin offerings. Okay, I'm going to look through all the offerings to find the sacrifice I need to do to cover the sins of adultery and murder. Now, studying Leviticus, does anybody know what offering you have to do to cover the sins of adultery and murder? There is no offering for adultery and murder in the law. You know what the result of adultery and murder was in the law? You're dead. Yeah, you get stoned. Talk about being in a corner with no way out. David knew that. You commit the adultery, you commit murder. There was nothing in the Old Testament that could take away that sin. Nothing. The only result was for you to be stoned. So when David says now in Psalm 51, if you would turn there real quick, when David writes this psalm after committing this sin with Bathsheba and he experiences God's forgiveness, you now have a full understanding of what he's trying to say here. Psalm 51. It says in Psalm 51, verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. See, God's righteousness, not David's. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, do not despise. David realized sacrifices could do nothing for him. Nothing. The only thing that would help him was God. 
So David, in faith, believed that he could be forgiven, and he was forgiven. That's the beautiful part about this. The Abrahams of this world are saved by believing in faith. The Davids of this world are made right. Their sins are forgiven by faith and forgiveness. I don't know which state you're in. Maybe some of you are in the Abraham state. You still think you've got to do something to earn this salvation. You're still trying to make sure you do more good than bad. Walk in grace. Maybe you're in the David spot. You came in today and you've been carrying this burden of sin for I don't know how long. You have done something unspeakable, unmentionable. You can never move past it. If anybody found out about it, God knows about it and he's willing to forgive you. Isn't that amazing? That's the beauty of grace and forgiveness. Now the problem is we still think there's something that I should do. Have you ever been in that position where there's a tragedy happening before your eyes, something big happening before your eyes, and you feel like I should do something? We help people move a lot here at church. And, and oh, it's been a couple months ago. It was Richard, Betsy, myself, and uh, Mike Christine were helping this family move. And they had a lot of stuff to move. And, and we were just sitting there, and we were waiting for them to get the move organized so we could figure out how to do it. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, there's something I should do. So you're like, okay, maybe I should just move the lamp from here to here. You know, just do something. Look over at Rich. He's sitting, drinking coffee, eating a donut. See, Richard is the picture of grace. I'm just going to eat a donut and let God forgive me. I'm the picture of, i got to do something. See, how many times do we do that when we've done something wrong? Lord, i I, I got to do something to earn your love back. Lord, i got to do something to show them a different person. Lord, i got to do... No. Lord, I have sinned against you. I'm sorry. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, verses 9 through 12 still talk about these people that feel like they have to do something. Verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Basically, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews are the circumcised, Gentiles are the uncircumcised. So everybody can have righteousness, verse 9. Well, how then was it accounted? How was this righteousness given to Abraham? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Meaning Abraham was saved before he had circumcision. See, this is the problem. The Jews were saying, I'm in because I'm Jewish. I've been circumcised. I'm in. Paul says, you're not in because of that. Abraham's an example of being saved before the circumcision. Now, we wouldn't use that term circumcision today, but we would use other terms. I'm in. Why? Well, because I've done this. I've jumped through this religious hoop. I've done this. I've dotted my religious I's. I've crossed my religious T's. I've done this, so I must be okay. Nothing you do. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteous might be imputed to them also. That word imputed is that word we learned earlier, accounted, credited. It's just said a little different here, that the righteousness is credited to everybody. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, those who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. But Paul is saying it's not for the Jews only, it's for everybody. Everybody. No matter where you're at in life, salvation is there for you. Now just to prove this point one more time, that Abraham did nothing to earn this, to, to get God's favor. You can study this out here later on today if you want a little further study of your own. It's out of Genesis 15. And it's in Genesis 15 you have that wonderful verse of Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, wonderful passage there. Now, what happens later on in Genesis 15 is God makes a covenant with Abraham. This covenant is for Abraham to be the father of the Jews. Now, generally when you think of a deal, when you think of a covenant, you think of the one side doing this and the other side doing that. And so therefore everybody gets something out of it. Well, when it got time to sign the covenant, if you will, in Genesis 15... The way they were going to sign the covenant was these animals were sacrificed, and you walk through these sacrificed animals together to show unity. 
to show that we are not going to break this covenant. So when I got time to make the covenant, to sign the deal, does anybody remember in Genesis 15 what Abraham was doing? He was sleeping. So what did God do? He did the covenant all by himself. Why? Because it didn't matter what Abraham was doing. It was God. See, Abraham was sleeping. <laughs> he was sleeping. The point is, when you sit there to try to do something, to either earn your salvation, to make yourself better in God's eyes, or to earn this forgiveness, or to pay this repentance. Really, you can learn from Abraham. Just sleep. Let God take care of it. Now, once again, I'm not saying that there's not a personal responsibility in our actions, in our lifestyle, and our morals. Just hang with me to Genesis, excuse me, to Romans 6 and 7. It's coming up. But for the aspect of salvation, it was done through Christ on the cross. It is finished. For the aspect of forgiveness that is done through Christ on the cross, it is finished. I believe, I trust, and that belief means I put my saving faith in this. And as I put my saving faith in, my, in forgiveness through Christ and salvation, it's credited to me, given to me. I have not earned it. I have not deserved it. It's credited to me through God. I get righteousness, which makes me right in the eyes of God. It is off my shoulders. What a beautiful picture of grace that is. Marv, we're going to come forward here for the final song. Just like last week, if the only thing you walk out of here today with is a better understanding of that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, that any man should boast. It is a gift of God, not of yourself. That's what you need to know. It's through the Lord. You haven't done it. You haven't earned it. I haven't done it. I haven't earned it. The Lord has taken care of it. What an absolute blessing that is to know what he does. Absolute blessing. Give it over to them for the final song. We'll close with a word of prayer and let you go.